Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 123 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we talked about the form of legal evolution and other initiatives looking at the future of the practice of law. In this episode, we consider another important way that the evolution of technology is driving change in the practice of law, the intersection of legal ethics and cybersecurity. Tom, what's on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report, we'll be talking about cybersecurity from the perspective of legal ethics, as well as the practical steps that lawyers should be considering to protect both themselves and their clients. In our second segment, we'll revisit the notion of the fast web that we talked about in the last episode and its implications on our thought processes. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second this podcast is over. But first, let's get started on our main topic, and that's ethics uh, as it applies to cybersecurity. Uh, You can hardly read the news these days and not find a story about how some company's security was compromised or how some hospital lost the records of hundreds of thousands of patients exposing the personal information of millions of consumers. Target's one, Neiman Marcus is another. So the topic of cybersecurity, I would consider to be white hot these days uh, as companies of all sizes, law firms included, are being encouraged to improve their technology, to improve their security processes, to make sure that they are protecting their client, their customer data. But you know, for law firms, though, I would say this is not a new topic. I don't know that it's a new topic for anybody, but uh, but I think this is something that law firms have had to think about for a long time and, and have had to take appropriate steps to make sure they're securing their client information. Dennis, do you want to go ahead and start us off and talk about the ways that maybe the FBI has been warning law firms about security issues the past couple of years? Yeah, I think that you make an important point, Tom, that law firms have always been aware of security and take some measures, certainly. But I I think that law firms and lawyers sort of felt they weren't the primary of target of hackers and others. So they didn't have a really good feel for what kind of level of, of danger that they were in and why they might be an attractive target to uh, criminals, hackers, uh, others. So uh, I saw a blog post from our friend Sharon Nelson from last year talking about how the FBI then had said that they thought there were hundreds of law firms that were subject to, to cyber attacks and that the FBI has been warning law firms since 2009 uh, consistently about uh, dangers and the need to, to beef up security. I know a lot of corporations uh, feel that their law firms are potentially a a weak link in their own security, given the sensitivity of of information and the types of practices, security practices that many law firms take. So that's become uh, important, I think, and it gives us a really good background to say that security really does affect law firms, and especially over the internet and in, in the technology that they use. And I think it's some of that background that led to the ethics 2020 commission of the ABA and and some changes in the ethics framework that 
do we have these days? So I guess with that background, Tom, and you might want to add something to it, but I think we can kind of jump in and say, what's the current state of affairs in legal ethics as it applies to cybersecurity? Well, I think you're right. Sharon has been talking a lot about law firms and hacking and data breaches in law firms. But frankly, not many other sources have been talking about that. You don't see stories about this firm was the victim of a data breach or this firm had been hacked into. A lot of that's because law firms probably aren't subject to the same kinds of uh, data breach disclosure laws that companies that serve particular industries are subject to. So you're not going to see that a lot. There's a lot of obviously confidentiality issues and that's why you're not seeing things. And obviously there's there's a definite need to keep that secret because having a data breach is never good for business. So we don't hear enough about it, but we're starting to, you know, I would say five or six years ago when I would talk about email and and the security of email, I would have people in solo and small firms say, why should I care if anybody, I mean, nobody's going to hack into my email. Who would want my email? And back then, I think you had a better argument for saying, well, it's less likely that someone's going to want to hack into your email. They're mostly going to follow the money and go for big firms who are working with big clients. But um, I don't think you can say that anymore. I think that it's all fair game. And I think everybody has an interest. And that's why the Ethics 2020 rules had been modified and the ABA had been looking at this for a number of years. And um, they really looked at it from two standpoints. Uh, they, they modified two different rules. The first rule that we probably won't spend as much time here talking about is the rule of competence. We've talked about this in many other podcasts in the past, but the rule of competence really wasn't changed. A lawyer has to be competent to represent their client, but the comment changed to the extent that it now requires that the definition of competence includes that a lawyer know about the risks and benefits associated with technology that is used to support the client. And that is, I I think, a a slightly different approach than we're going to be taking and a slightly different angle than we're going to be taking today uh, because some of the cybersecurity things we're going to talk about, we don't necessarily expect lawyers to have a good understanding about. They need to know that those tools exist and that they are implementing those tools and using them to protect their data and their client data. So the real rule we want to focus on is the rule that deals with confidentiality. And the change was substantially to talk about the protection of information. And so I'm going to read you a brief excerpt. And this was the the main edit from the, uh, the main revision to this particular rule that says, the unauthorized access to or the inadvertent or unauthorized disclosure of information relating to the representation of a client. You notice it didn't say confidential. They they crossed out the word confidential here, which I think is interesting. Sorry for that little editorial. Information relating to the representation of a client does not constitute a violation of the duty of confidentiality if the lawyer has made reasonable efforts to prevent the access or disclosure. Factors to be considered in determining reasonableness. So when you determine whether something is reasonable, you have these five factors that you include. One, the sensitivity of the information at issue. Two, the likelihood of disclosure if additional safeguards are not employed. If you don't put anything to secure it, how likely is that information to be disclosed? Three, the cost of employing additional safeguards. How much is it going to cost to bring in that new hardware or software or change people's behavior in order to protect that information? 
Four, the difficulty of implementing the safeguards, which means how difficult is it uh, from a burden standpoint to put those in uh, with maybe legacy data or the current infrastructure that you have. And then five, the extent to which the safeguards affect the lawyer's ability to represent clients. So by making the device or the software really difficult for someone to use. So those are the factors that a court or an ethics board would review if there was an issue of, of inadequate protection or, or an inadvertent or unauthorized disclosure of client's information. Uh, the rule does state that the client may require the lawyer to implement special security measures that would otherwise be required by this rule. I, I think that what we're looking at here really is a reasonableness standard. We're not looking at Fort Knox type security for every single situation here. It's going to be judged on a case-by-case basis. And I think that's what this rule is trying to say. Dennis, what do you think about this? I mean, is that rule kind of reasonable for lawyers to have to to follow? Well, I think there's a reasonableness about it. And I think, to me, the reasonableness evolves over time. And so I, I think it's interesting how those five factors work, to me, hand-in-hand with the notion of competence. Because if you keep up to speed on some of these things, even some of those five factors, as you read them, felt a little bit dated to me. Because now, talking about some of the protection that you might employ, say, full-disk encryption, in the old days, that might really pose a performance problem. Now it's much less so the case. And so something like full drive encryption could be almost seen as becoming a standard practice, if not now, but over the next few years. And so that could be reasonable as technology continues to evolve and those factors change. So as long as you think of reasonableness as as an evolving standard and then tie it back to the fact that, that lawyers are going to have to keep up with technology to say, because it doesn't stand still. And I think you do need to know the nature of, of the typical attacks, where problems have occurred, if there are known targets, and then sort of what are the standard approaches that people take um, in response to these things. And then that it is a process that has to keep keep changing and and staying up to speed because the the bad guys and I think in the past you used to say oh law firms weren't really target because the bad guys had other better targets well the whole nature of threats have changed and a lot of it is more automated the issues are you know getting control of computers getting identity information other things like that that actually law firms can be a very attractive target and sometimes to be the uh, the target of organized crime, you know, bad actors uh, both inside but mainly outside the U.S. Uh, for U.S. firms, and so it's a changing threat environment. So I think that competence thing is not something you say, "Oh, I'm fairly competent, and that should be okay." That has to keep evolving. But I think that when you go to confidentiality. And then reasonableness in a sense of due diligence and uh, that evolving sense of reasonableness is, I think, what's going there. And those five factors, though, feel they may start to date uh, over time. I don't know about that. I mean, I, I sort of think that those five particular factors 
tend to evolve with the technology. I mean, looking at things like the likelihood of disclosure of the safeguards are unemployed, the cost of employing the safeguards. So, you know, the safeguards will be evolving over time. The type of uh, practices or tools or technologies that you use to protect the data that you have is going to evolve over time, and the costs will change of that. So I, I, I guess I have a slightly different opinion. I think that the rule is designed to help with that evolving idea of what reasonableness is and to think about new technology. And I think you were kind of headed down some of the things we were talking about, but there are just in the past couple of years, new types of risks that are out there with the fact that we have more people using mobile devices and the fact that uh, in the coming years, I think that more people will be using mobile devices than computers or laptops. You've got uh, location data suddenly becoming incredibly important, not only for law enforcement, but also for retailers and other companies like that wanting to know where you are at any point in time during the day. Social media, obviously, we've talked about that many times and the risks that arise over the improper use of social media. You've got uh, the idea of internet advertising, of the fact that uh, advertisers like to put things like cookies on your computer that would have some level of persistence that continues to track you as you go across the internet, understanding your behaviors, the places you visit, the sites you see, the searches you make, more points of, of contact and more points of information for data brokers. And then finally, the whole notion of what's with the cloud. I think we've, again, talked about that on many occasions in this podcast about the security level, but you've got all those different areas to think about. I think that I'll come back to you and and maybe challenge the notion that a lawyer's responsibility to understand the risks and benefits only extends to a certain level uh, because there's so much here to think about. I read a headline the other day that said that there's an average of, I can't remember how many tens or hundreds of thousands of new threats that arise every day to our computers, to our data. And certainly there is no <laughs> no requirement. This th- does not require lawyers to understand all of those threats or wh- how those threats differ, only that those threats exist to try to get at our information and that we need to employ reasonable safeguards to protect that information. And I think that keeping up to date on certain issues um, is important and is necessary to comply with these new rules and the revisions of the rules. I just don't think that they're going to require everybody to uh, become tech gurus or security experts. I think it's more, again, that reasonableness, that just good enough, that standard that lawyers are going to have to have um, in order to comply with the, the rule of confidentiality. Well, maybe, Tom, on the, the sort of basic notion, I might get to where you're at. I mean, I think that changes if you know you're subject to certain types of attacks or, you know, there have been issues that have come up in, in the past or you know that you're doing something inadequate. And also, I think that, you know, certain things change. So, you know, these days, sometimes I think there's a tipping point, too. So I, I suspect we're fairly close to a time where encryption is going to be considered a basic security step that people need to take. Weak passwords, already a problem. And I don't think that you can say, oh, I'm protecting important documents with very weak passwords. I don't know that that's going to be considered reasonable. Uh, if not now, then it, certainly in the near future. Are we moving to multi-factor authentication? Are we moving to biometrics? So I think you see changes there. This reasonableness, I think, is a moving target that you can't say, oh, I've just done the basics, because I think those basics 
continue to change and there are some tipping points on that and you know like i think that it's it's basic security to update your programs every time there's a security update but i don't know that if at this point where somebody who's doing sort of uh not updating immediately but sort of getting around to updating when they get the chance and there's an issue on the ethics side i don't know that that would not be considered or that would be considered unreasonable, you know, in 2014. But I think we're getting close to that point. Well, I think that what you described for me, and I will make the argument that although you won't see every lawyer out there using these things, I would argue that what you've described should be really a baseline for cybersecurity these days, should be the minimum that lawyers should consider when protecting their data. And that is some level of encryption, uh, preferably whole disk encryption, but uh, but other types of encryption as well. Password managers, some type of, of solution to manage passwords better than the way that we are managing them now. And like you said, multi-factor authentication, although I think that that is certainly important. If we discussed, I think, the whole Matt Honan episode that occurred last year where his identity was stolen and everything was stolen, and if he had had his two-factor authentication set up on his Gmail account, it never would have happened. That's a good lesson, although on the other hand, I'm not sure that multi-factor authentication on my Evernote account really protects sensitive information that I've got. It could. I think there's an argument, and lots of security experts will say, enable two-factor authentication wherever you have it. I think there's probably, again, a sliding scale of reasonableness there. But that applies, I think, to lawyers who are solo and small firms. I think that when you start to get into larger firms, you're going to need to have more robust network security. You've got issues, no matter the size of the firm, with data leaving the firm from employees as well as being, you know, people who threats from outside. You've got the internal threats as well. Uh, When you've got a solo and small firm, you really can own try to deal with that threat by good education and monitoring your employees the best you can. When you get into a larger firm, you can start to invest in tools like data loss prevention software, things that will monitor if information is leaving the company that that really shouldn't be leaving the company. But I mean, my argument would be that those are sort of your baseline. I would include with that the standards, the firewall, the antivirus, the anti-malware, the things that most companies are employing to keep, you know, sort of the the gates around the city protected. But is there anything else that we're not thinking about? Am I am I off base there? Is that uh, what we would consider to be a reasonable standard for this? Well, I think so. But I also, I think your list there and the number of things we touched on shows why this is so daunting and so challenging for a lot of lawyers, because we could double that yep. list easily. Agreed. And we haven't really talked about what clients might expect or what clients might demand in the way of protection of their confidential information. But I sort of come down to this question of, is confidentiality in the technology world all that different from confidentiality in the real world? And we just need to get the right you know, analogies and consider the types of information, whether it's internal, it's client information, what's the equivalent of locking up something in a file, what's the equivalent of allowing limited access to a folder or a file room or a floor in your law firm, and bring those analogies into the electronic world. Um, I also think there's a notion that there's some baseline things. I mean, I think you have to have some policies that make sense that you're enforcing in terms of security and data protection. I think training, 
You know, we say it all the time, but a lot of this stuff, you can go a long way in protecting information with some pretty simple training and monitoring. I mean, like every place I go now on the web, it's when it asks for a new password, it tells me the strength of the password. That's something you probably need to be looking at internally and enforce, you know, create password policies and enforce those. So that's where I think there there are some baseline things that we can kind of think through. And I know, Tom, you talked about maybe we could evolve to some notion of, I don't know, best practice, because I think there's a lot of variation in that, but but certainly reasonable practices. And I think those are hard to pin down at this point, because I don't know that there's been anybody who's kind of been brought up on the confidentiality rule where those five factors have actually been applied. I think you're right. I mean, obviously, I haven't seen any application of these two revisions to the rules in any context so far. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I really think that the things we've talked about are sort of the minimum best practices for protecting data. You know, encryption, good password practices, multi-factor authentication where available, combined with training and policies, I think are your kind of your your safe, uh, when you combine that obviously with your firewall and antivirus and all that, are really your baseline. And that's where I'd like to see lawyers moving to over time because I think that, and frankly, as threats evolve, then this baseline may change. It may change over time. But I think that right now, this is where I think that lawyers need to be. And judging from their responses on the ABA uh, Legal Technology Resource Center survey last year, we still have a long way to go on all of those areas. So uh, it's something that lots of lawyers, lots of law firms have their work cut out for them. Dennis, want to take us out of this segment with any last thoughts on uh, whether security will get better or not? I hope it gets better. The thing I've always felt about security and what really informs my approach to security is that my bad security practices hurt everybody else on the internet. And so the better we all do at security, the better it is for everybody. So it's sort of that notion of, you know, herd immunity when you talk about vaccines. So the fact that people are using good practices kind of helps everybody. And I hope we get to a point where there's a better sense for that, that, you know, your lack security practices could affect your clients, could affect others in difficult ways. And so that little bit of inconvenience, the extra cost, as we said, a sort of long list of both technology, you know, personnel and other practices that you need to employ. And the fact that they're going to change over time will seem worth it because, you know, what's at stake is confidentiality of client information and the protection of sensitive information of your own of all kinds. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. 
And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. In Tom's parting shot in our last episode, he mentioned a life hacker post by Kevin Lee called The Fast Web is Impairing How You Think. Kevin argues that fast access to information and also that general feeling we all have of being overwhelmed with too much information that we get from the web these days is actually impairing the way that we think. Kevin advocates, not surprisingly, that something he refers to as the slow web as an alternative to the fast web. Tom, what's this slow web thing, and do we really have any time to think about it? (laughs) Well, let's take a deliberate look at that for just a few minutes here. When I first read the article um, a couple of weeks ago, it made me think of the whole slow food movement, which recommended that we take a more deliberate approach and deliberate look at how we consume food and eat it from a position of of freedom rather than of compulsion. It's more than just eating slowly. It's more of a holistic approach to food, and I don't want to get all metaphysical in this discussion, but uh, the slow web approach is similar. And it made me remember studies uh, that came out a couple of years ago where they showed that people who read articles on their computer monitors on the internet tend to skim them rather than to actually read for comprehension and that people who read on a computer may have a more shallow appreciation for the content than any deep knowledge of what they're reading. The concept of that slow web is not to really get rid of or reduce your consumption of internet content, although it seems to come from the idea that we're being constantly bombarded by inputs, by articles we have to read, by Facebook comments we have to look at, by emails that are always on our face demanding our attention. And it wants us to consume this information more thoughtfully, to try to get off that fast track of information overload, which I know personally for me is a very difficult thing because I, I like to consume information where whenever I can. Kevin, the author, he believes that the more time we spend on the internet, the more we get overtaxed, we get overwhelmed, we get, I think, vulnerable, and that winds up causing something called automatic believing, which is when we are vulnerable, when we're tired, we're more likely likely to believe questionable or even false information. It happens a lot more often when we're tired or distracted, and really there's nothing more distracting these days than the internet. Kevin also describes something called the idea of inattentional blindness. I'm not sure that inattentional is a word, but it it doesn't sound like a word to me, but it sounds very good. Inattentional blindness, which is really the simple notion that your brain gets so caught up in a simple task that you miss other things. I can testify that it happens to me because I sit with my iPad on my lap while I'm watching TV, and if I'm reading something on my iPad, I may miss whole chunks of whatever TV show or movie or sporting event I'm watching and not even know that it, it happened to go by. So I can testify to this inattentional blindness that happens that makes you miss certain things in order to concentrate on others, which I think really is logical. I think the only thing is, does Kevin have an answer? I think he recommends really sort of the logical response, which is more downtime for your brain. Give your your brain time to uh, where it's not distracted, where it's free to wander, giving your brain the time to make sense of the information, to make sense of ourselves, and to help process that information more. I think that's good advice, certainly for anybody in any circumstance. But Dennis, do you think that that solves the problem of the fast web? 
you know, I, I really struggle with this. And I, I've actually given this subject a lot of thought this year because I agree that there's this massive information that we all take in. And it is overwhelming to a certain extent. And I always had the sense that you'd take in this huge amount of information and then you'd kind of let it percolate in your brain. And then you would kind of come back to you later and you would, you know, find connections between different things. And that was a really good process. But now I think that the information comes in and it comes in and comes in, comes in. And the times that you would normally spent allowing it to kind of percolate and process, you just have more information coming in. So that that actual percolation point never comes or it comes in odd, you know, odd ways that you you don't expect. It's not really intentional anymore. Um, So I think that is difficult. And so. You, you do find yourself toying with the idea of maybe I'll avoid the internet for a week or something like that to just kind of let a bunch of things soak in and, and try to see where I'm going. But as a practical matter, for most people, it doesn't seem to happen. The one thing, though, that's kind of interesting that you were describing was you know that you're watching a tv show or whatever and you're doing something on your ipad and it's at the same time and you realize you sort of intellectually you realize you missed something but you also believe that you know exactly what happened in that show so so <laughs> it's not like you go back to it you exactly just sort right. of know and, and and so that's another interesting phenomenon and then the other thing is that maybe that that's the way we're we're moving because you have meetings that people are saying have to be shorter you have powerpoint slides that need to have less on them you know people only want to take certain amounts of time they only want a summary that's one page and so the way that we have to process make decisions is different a lot of times and that having the time to think is a luxury that not many people are finding anymore and i don't know what whether we can roll the clock back to say you get more time or that the people who do well are the people who who respond well to that faster pace and processing that amount of information for better or worse now it's time for our parting shots that one tip website or observation you can use the second this podcast ends tom take it away So uh, a number of years ago, when I started to travel a lot more, I used the Bose noise-canceling headphones, but the one thing that kept me from using them on a regular basis was the fact that they were so darn big, and I hated to put them in my computer bag or in my suitcase or anything. They were just too big to take when you travel. They're perfect for around the house, but not good for traveling. That's why I was so pleasantly surprised to learn that that Bose, other companies have done this too, but Bose created a set of noise-canceling in ear headphones. The Bose QuietComfort 20 headphones are fantastic. They fit in a little tiny pouch. They're slightly bigger because they've got a little power supply than your regular set of headphones, but they're still not anywhere near as big as the big old massive headphones that you might see people wearing on a plane. Now, they do have fantastic noise-canceling abilities, so they're not cheap. Uh, in Amazon right now, they're 299 bucks. but I tell you, traveling as much as I do and being able to shut out everything to listen to music or concentrate on what I'm working on is completely worth it. So go to Amazon, Bose Quiet Comfort 20 noise-canceling in-ear headphones. Dennis. 
Interesting, because I'm looking for bigger and bigger headphones to wear to signal to people that I really don't want to talk to them, So, uh, which is the opposite side of noise canceling. So my parting shot is uh, something from the Long Now Foundation, which does a lot of cool things, has a great podcast, and thinks about the sort of long-term future. So they're doing a series of collections from people of links and lists. They're calling them Manual for Civil And they're basically trying to answer the question of if we had some humongous catastrophe and we had to start over, what books are necessary to give us the skills that we need that we sort of rely these days on the Internet? to learn or maybe you know from how do you build fire to how do you make metals to how do you do these things that we don't typically do anymore and so what obviously there are books out there that are great sources on that and they're trying to put together that list so it's kind of a you know it's a cool idea and and also as a resource uh you know we don't have to have a giant catastrophe if you just want to learn how to do something and what's the best book to learn that from it could be on on the list they're putting together Awesome resource. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Information on how to get in touch with us, as well as links to all the topics we discussed today, is available on our show notes blog at tknreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site. You can get to the archives of all of our previous podcasts in both places as well. If you have a question that you want answered or a topic for an upcoming podcast, please email us at tcamreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet at tcamreport. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by rating this podcast or writing a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, the Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.